What is the self? Case 87 of the Blue Cliff Record, Yun Men's Medicine and Sickness, goes like this. Yun Men said to the assembly, medicine and sickness mutually correspond to each other. The whole universe is medicine. What is the self? And what conclusion do many of us tend to jump to automatically? It's sickness. That's what we're supposed to think. That's how it's set up. Philosophically, it's a syllogism. And then we may shrivel into a horrible little feeling of anxiety, panic, despair or anger or whatever, depending on our tendencies. But usually something doesn't feel good as we consider how it's this self. It's me that is the problem, the sickness. But what is this sickness really? Well, this rather depends on the self. Who really are you? I've observed a tendency to think that the self is closely aligned with our current storyline. One day it may be, oh, I'm so lucky to be here at Seshin. I feel calm and settled. And even when X was shuffling around a lot and Y burned the porridge yet again, I didn't even feel annoyed. It's wonderful. This is the right practice for me. It works. Another day it may be, oh, I don't think I'm cut out for this practice. I've had a big night on Saturday night and it was, I was really grouchy with the kids the next day. How can I think I practice Zen when I do things like that? I've got no self-control and complete failure. Surely the self isn't something that depends on what day we ask the question. So what is it? You've probably noticed, if you were on the recent session, that this is yet another Yun Men story. And this is perhaps quintessential Yun Men, pointing again to right here, right now. What is the self we're talking about? The self is neither good nor bad. We think medicine is good and sickness is bad, right? Sickness is something that needs changing, needs healing. It's a problem and it's the self I call me that is the problem. That's what we think, isn't it? Not all the time, but you know, confronted by this koan, who hasn't toyed with the idea that I myself must be sickness, must be the problem that needs fixing. But neither I nor you are merely the self we conventionally think of as the self. The conglomeration of thoughts and memories that we fashion into a sense of me. This self, this me, is very handy, essential even. It has a name and can communicate with many other beings who share this universe. 
When we think of ourselves, uh, me, these days, we may think of ourselves as an independent being that is run by something akin to a sophisticated computer in our heads that stores our visual memories, our knowledge, our biography, and so on. Many people seem to think our individuality is reflected by our preferences, the people we choose to mix with, our place of work, our choice of music, our mode of transport, what we watch, what we read, what we eat, where we choose to go on holiday, what we believe. And that's what much of our economic system relies on too. People will keep paying to be more like the person they want to be. I'm sorry, I'm actually sure that most of you are actually careful not to be lured into endlessly shopping for what will enhance who you are. But gosh, it's tricky. Even choosing to shop at op shops and do lots of mending and believing, as Thoreau did, that one should be wary of any activity that requires one wear new clothes can be a way of indicating who we think we are. And that's the whole point. We are not who we think. So, who are we? What is the self? One of the things that lured me into Zen and keeps me here is that it's always reminding us that we really don't know very much at all. And the reality we think is obvious to all of us really consists of stories we, as humans, create. And I mean really big stories, as well as all our little personal ones. The story of the origins of the universe, or mathematics, or the periodic table, or the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and how the stock market went today, are stories we can share as how things really are. These are the facts we all co-construct and generally agree on, more or less, so that we can live together in community. There are also little stories about how we had an argument with our best friend today, and feel upset about going for a lovely walk and accidentally buying a dog. And these stories are really, really useful. We have enough knowledge to be able to get by in the world, to communicate, to build things. But actually, we don't comprehend things as they are, but only as we comprehend them. We are creatures that are awake in daylight and have eyesight that allows us to see and do what we need to live pretty well. Mm. There's a nice poem by the crypto-naturalist about this. It's called The Impossible. Bats can hear shapes. Plants can eat light. Bees can dance maps. We can hold all these ideas at once and feel both heavy and weightless with the absurd beauty of it all.
some fish can actually see far more colours than we can. Reef fish need to be able to distinguish a huge range of colours and some even have four cones, one of which sees ultraviolet, as well as the blue, green and red that we humans have. However, fish that live in the deep might not be able to see red, but their enhanced ability to see greens and blues works better in dim light. So, not only do we each have different thoughts, we have different perceptions from other beings and from each other. Nevertheless, humans, like fish or bees or bats, also mostly share the way they sense the world with others of their species and act in and communicate about the world in ways that allow them to survive and thrive in that environment. There are some lines in Dogen that point to this. Now, when dragons and fish see water as a palace, it's just like human beings seeing a palace. They do not think it flows. If an outsider tells them what you see as a palace is running water, the dragons and fish will be astonished, just as we are when we hear the words mountains flow. Nevertheless, there may be some dragons and fish who understand that the columns and pillars of palaces and pavilions are flowing water. You should reflect and consider the meaning of this. If you do not learn to be free from your superficial views, you will not be free from the body and mind of an ordinary person. Then you will not understand the land of Buddha ancestors or even the land or the palace of ordinary people. Now, human beings well know as water what is in the ocean and what is in the river. But they do not know what dragons and fish see as water and use as water. Do not foolishly suppose that what we see as water is used as water by all other beings. You who study with Buddhas should not be limited to human views when you are studying water. This is from the Mountains and Rivers Sutra and it's mind-blowing, isn't it? It's meant to be. It's like the Lankavatara Sutra in that regard. That sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra, was very important in the development of Chan. It was a sacred text of Yogacara Buddhism. Bodhidharma told his successor Huike that it contained all that he needed to know to be his successor. I mention it because the aspects of Buddhism that it focused on include the fact that the truth of the Dharma cannot be expressed in words and letters. The lack of an independent self-nature because of a sense of self is only a manifestation of mind and emptiness the realization of the non-existence of observer or observed, among other teachings. D.T. Suzuki said that the whole Lankavatara is just a collection of notes unsystematically strung together. He wrote in his book on the Sutra, the one most important thing that students of Buddhism have to realize at the very outset of their study is that Buddhism is not a system of philosophy has no intention to present a logically coherent formula of thought. What 
what the Buddhist teaching professes to do is to get us truthfully acquainted, acquainted with the ultimate facts of existence. The reason that Buddhism is hard to understand intellectually is nothing to do with whether we are clever or intellectual or not. It is to do with the fact that it cannot be explained. Actually, it's not something we can understand. We can only realize it. It's like the taste of chocolate. How could you explain that to somebody? Which brings us back to this koan. Actually, it brings us back to every koan. Koans are generally examples of dialogue or in some cases monologue if the person or people being addressed don't answer that jolt us out of our everyday conventional way of thinking. So, instead of looking suspiciously at a little brown square that is not very visually appealing and screaming and writhing in an effort to avoid the person who is trying to put it in our mouth, and now we can taste it and, oh wow, now we know what it tastes like. We want more. And I know this for a fact because I am always blamed as the person who put a piece of chocolate in my granddaughter's mouth when she was screaming. <laughs> and she's, yes, like to ever since. Zen practice helps us to detach from the idea that who we really are is what we write in our CV or in our online profile, or, or even what we tell our therapist. Of course, all that is part of it, but if we maintain such a limited view of who we really are, we are missing a whole universe. Another early influence of Chan, as well as Lankavatara Sutra that Bodhidharma had brought from India, was Hua Yen, which developed in China in the 6th to 9th century ending during the purges at that time. Based on the Avatamsaka Sutra, it was based on a fourfold schema for viewing reality. First, seeing the oneness of all things, absolute reality. Second, seeing the particular in the everyday, what we normally think of as reality. The third is seeing the interpenetration of the universal and the particular. The universal only exists in the particular. And the fourth way is the mutual interpenetration of all particulars. All particulars interpenetrate with all other particulars. So, I don't know if you followed that, but here goes. In order to make these doctrines more accessible to non-monastics, they came up with stories to explain difficult concepts like that last one. And that's where the net of Indra comes in. This was an idea that arose in India, of course, with a name like that. Far away in the heavenly abode of the great god Indra, there is a wonderful net which has been hung by some cunning artificer in such a manner that it stretches out infinitely in all directions. In accordance with the extravagant tastes of deities, the artificer has hung a single glittering jewel in each eye of the net. And since the net 
is infinite in dimensions, the jewels are infinite in number. There hang the jewels, glittering like the stars of the first magnitude, a wonderful sight to behold. If we now arbitrarily select one of these jewels for inspection and look closely at it, we will discover that in its polished surface there are reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. Not only that, but each of the jewels reflected in this one jewel also reflecting all the other jewels. So there's an infinite reflecting process occurring. That's from Cook's book about Huayen. This is actually a view of the cosmos or Dhammadhatu or essential nature, which more or less aligns with a modern ecological perspective of the absolute interconnectedness of everything in ways we have been slow to recognize and are even slower to act upon. In other words, the Zen or Chan view of reality is based upon a perspective on the nature of reality that even in non-Zen circles works. I think there is little doubt among anyone who is paying attention that the earth, which includes all that it is, water, people, flies, computers, cow poo, skyscrapers and so on, and other celestial bodies, the sun and moon for example, are all interpenetrating, interreflecting, interbeing. Plants eat sunlight, we eat plants, that's how we live. So, where am I going with all this? I guess I'm trying to share how wonderful this all is. It's really wild. And yet it's also true and compassionate. It rests on the emptiness of everything. In particular, the emptiness of self. And at the same time, the interbeing of all things. For us personally, realizing this is joyous and truly liberating. If we realize that, in that, then compassionate action will arise. If we no longer act out of a desire to protect the illusory separate self, actions will become compassionate. In the words of Francis H. Cook in his book on Huayan Buddhism, which, as I hope you can see, has had a profound effect on Zen, he writes, if anything, Buddhist love is something akin to that love of which Dante spoke so movingly and beautifully as the love that moves the sun and the other stars. At first glance, this may seem to be an outrageous exaggeration, but this compassion is the occurrence in space and time of a compassion which pervades 10,000 galaxies and realizes itself in them, individual by individual. His book on Huayan Buddhism concludes with the words, when in a rare moment I manage painfully to rise above a petty individualism by knowing my true nature, 
I perceive that I dwell in the wondrous net of Indra and in this incredible network of interdependence, the career of the Bodhisattva must begin. It's not just that we are all in it together. We all are it, rising or falling as one living body. This doesn't mean that because we are on the Bodhisattva path, no bad things happen. We will hurt. We will die. The reality that it's okay because we really are. All are this and always have been and always will be. It's not what always guides us because we continue to be assailed by fear and doubt, tiredness or timidity at times. It can take eons to become accomplished bodhisattvas. But we are on the path, endeavouring to practice our great vows. Returning now to where I began, Yun Men said to the assembly, medicine and sickness mutually correspond to each other. The whole universe is medicine. What is the self? I came upon a story told by Norman Fisher writing about joyful effort, which is one of the parameters, virya, often translated as zeal or vitality. He was for a while a student of Maureen Muan Stewart, whom we remember in our second sutra service dedication. She was for a while a student of Yatsutani, an ancestor in our own lineage. And he writes, Years ago, she was diagnosed with incurable liver cancer. She was still a relatively young woman with lots of energy and many students to take care of, among them my wife and myself. She gave a Dharma talk in which she said with great vigour, I am not sick. Everyone was upset. The great Zen master in denial Finally, someone brought it up with her. Maureen said, I know I have cancer. I know I'm going to die soon, but I'm not sick. She continued to practice joyful effort right up until the end of her life. For all I know, she is practicing it still. Indeed, she was not sick. So here we are. So, each of us perhaps feels, since we are today all in different places, like an individual, each in our own separate place. Yet here we are, all together, interconnecting, interbeing on Zoom. I hope you have enjoyed exploring some of the teachings that we have inherited from various Buddhist traditions that made their way into Zen early in its development as Chan. When we chant or read our sutras, we can see throughout the influence of threads that began early on as Buddhism was carried across from village to village, country to country. What I find extraordinary still is that that ability Zen teachings have to knock us senseless with awe, wonder and profound incomprehension 
while simultaneously encouraging us, showing us how to walk the Bodhisattva path. I love the way that despite all the advances in science and technology since the time the Bodhisattva path was developing in the early centuries after Shakyamuni, the main teachings remain unchallenged. If anything, the questions about the nature of time, the nature of reality, are as well answered by the early Zen teachings as by any modern theory. But as time went on, the popularity of the Lankavatara Sutra and the Avatamsaka Sutra were replaced by the Diamond Sutra, which was much shorter and easier to memorize. But its most well-known lines still bear the traces of its antecedents. The Buddha spoke to Subhuti saying, Subhuti, someone might fill innumerable worlds with the seven treasures and give all away in gifts of alms. But if any good man or any good woman awakens the thought of enlightenment and takes even only four lines from this discourse, reciting, using, receiving, retaining and spreading them abroad and explaining them for the benefit of others, it will be far more meritorious. Now, in what manner may he explain them to others? By detachment from appearances, abiding in real truth. So I tell you, Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. So yes, the whole world is medicine and the self, the separate self, is sickness. But the self we truly are, listen. Look, and I've got a PS here. If you are wondering how to meditate to reveal your true self, your original face, Dogen's Fukan Zazengi is your guide. Take the backward step and turn the light inward. Your body mind of itself will drop off and your original face will appear. If you want to attain just this, immediately practice just this. This guidance from Dogen comes directly from the Yogacara, or mind-only school, which included the Lankavatara and the Avatamsaka Sutras I've referred to today, which examine the analysis of consciousness and apparently try to identify the exact moment when consciousness splits off subject and object, that's me and whatever's being sensed, which leads to separation and to suffering. This instruction of Dogen's invites us to stop our normal habit of reaching out towards something and to step back into the silence of mind itself, into pure awareness itself. Thank you for your attention.